My name is Jamie Keach, and you're listening to the Resource Insider Podcast, where we talk to CEOs, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs in the mining and metals industry. Welcome to another episode of the Resource Insider Podcast. I'm your host, Jamie Keach, and today we have a bit of a special episode because this is our second ever live Resource Insider Podcast, and I got to sit down with a very special guest to me in front of a live audience hosted by KPMG. We were here in Vancouver at their offices a very, very cool space, uh, really designed to host events just like this. And they were very generous to set us up and take good care of us. And this event, this podcast came together because of a group called YMP. And YMP is Young Mining Professionals. They have chapters all over the world. They are in Vancouver here where it started, uh, Toronto, they're in Australia, they're in London, they're all over the place. And it's an organization that I have been a part of for years now, and it's allowed me to meet many, many, many of my contacts and business associates and friends who work in the mining industry. So if you work in mining, if you are interested in expanding your network and you're under the age of around 40, I highly recommend you check out YMP and see if there is a young mining professionals chapter in your area. And if you live in a mining hub and there isn't one, maybe reach out to the organization because YMP has almost been franchising lately and they've spread out all over the world and there's some really great people doing some really cool things and I highly recommend you check it out. Now, besides the fact that it was a live podcast, something that sets this podcast apart, at least for me, was the guest. And today's guest is a gentleman named Greg Smith. And for those of you who don't know, Greg is the president of a company called Equinox Gold. And a big reason why this was a special podcast for me is I used to work for Greg. So Greg was my first boss when I came and worked in Vancouver and transitioned really in my own career from the technical side, working on mine sites, working in uh, technical due diligence and construction and all the really hard skills of mining to more the business side. And I moved to Vancouver, I met Greg and we ended up working together for a tiny little company called Anthem United. He hired me with really, really no uh, business experience at that time to fill what was a combination of corporate development and technical services. And Anthem United grew through a series of mergers and acquisitions. I believe there were six companies acquired in all to become what today is Equinox Gold. And, and that was a company that went from a $20 million market cap all the way to where it is today, which is nearly a billion dollar market cap. So it was a huge learning experience for me. Um, it really set me on the path to doing what I'm doing now. And Greg was a very, very big part of that learning process and spent a tremendous amount of time teaching me everything I need to know about uh, the business and finance side of mining and capital markets in general. And it was such an invaluable education for me personally. It was really important for me to get Greg on this podcast and particularly in front of a, a live group of other 
young mining professionals and try to tease out some of the lessons that I learned along the way. So this podcast is really for people that are in the mining space and are looking to be entrepreneurial, to start their own mining company, or to take a bigger role in the business and capital markets side of the sector. Greg has spent his uh, a big part of his career as a mining entrepreneur, and we get into the details of what it takes to go out on your own, how you set up a deal, how you raise money, all of these things that are very, very important and very hard to find information on. This is also going to be great for investors at home, particularly that those of you who participate in early stage companies and startup stage mining companies, because Greg discusses the kind of people he works with and how you choose partners and a lot of things that are going to add value if you're trying to evaluate early stage opportunities, uh, very much like we do at Resource Insider. And you know, for those of you who want to learn more about this, I highly, highly recommend you sign up to our newsletter. So our website is resource-insider.com. You're going to find a lot more information there. If you plug your email address in, you are going to get regular updates from us about what is going on in the industry, what it is we find interesting, projects we're looking at, deals we're working on, companies we talk to, and a lot of exclusive information that is only for our subscribers. So do check out resource-insider.com and sign up and become a subscriber and you're going to get all this information sent to you on a weekly or monthly basis, depending on when we put it out. Now, without further ado, let me please once again thank KPMG and YMP and introduce you to Greg Smith, president of Equinox Gold. Insider Live podcast. I'm really excited about this event. We're trying to branch out a little bit, do some more creative things that also provides networking for our, uh, for our group and for our members. So I'm really excited to have Jamie here with us today. And obviously, none of these events get put together without our generous sponsors. So first and foremost, thank you to KPMG. They've done an incredible job helping. Um, obviously, we're all in the KPMG offices right now, which are stunning. But also, just with all the logistics, I can't thank them enough for all their support with this event. And to all our other sponsors, so Castles Brock, Integra, Varian, Equinox, Verify, and Solaris. Uh, we also want to thank our global sponsors, Rio Tinto. <coughs> So if you don't already know Jamie Keach, he's a mining engineer and professional investor. He has worked on mining projects globally for a variety of companies including Hatch Consulting, Layton Contractors, and Equinox Gold. He currently manages Evolve Ventures Capital and the Resource Insider Newsletter. So if you haven't already, I highly recommend that you check out his podcast, uh, which is really the basis for this event. He interviews some of the highest caliber mining executives and entrepreneurs and provides all of us with some insight into their careers and paths to success. On that topic, I'm very, very excited to have Greg Smith here for Jamie's podcast today. Greg is currently the president of Equinox Gold and he's a co-founder of YMP Vancouver. His track record really speaks for itself. He was instrumental in the creation of Equinox Gold through a number of mergers and acquisitions to take the company from a development stage through to its current stage as mid-tier gold producer. He has notable experience creating shareholder value. 
He was president and CEO of Esperanza Resources, which was sold to Alamos Gold, and CFO of Mind Finders, which was sold to Pan American. He's held management roles at both Gold Corp and KPMG, and he's acted as the director of Premier Royalty prior to its sale to Sandstorm Gold. So lastly, before I hand it over, we wouldn't all have the opportunity to be here um, and the opportunity to network today under the umbrella of YMP if it wasn't for Greg's entrepreneurial quality that led him to co-found YMP Vancouver in 2007 alongside Rohan Hazelton and Scott Jeffrey. He's a role model for all of us young entrepreneurs looking to be successful in the industry. And with that, I'm excited to pass it over to these two guys. All right. Now, thank you very much um, <clears throat> for that lovely introduction. Um, and I guess just to echo a little bit of what you said, I think before we start, we should thank KPMG for hosting us. Uh, for those of you listening at home, you can't see this, but it's a very sort of beautiful area, and KPMG has been very gracious in setting everything up and making it so that I didn't have to do any work, as well as Mal. Uh, and secondly, probably thanks to YMP, and that is the Young Mining Professionals organization. Uh, it's been a huge impact in my career. Um, I've met a lot of people who've added a lot of value to me. Uh, my friend and lawyer here is sitting in one of the front rows. He's uh, kept me out of jail successfully for the last several years. So, And I met him through a YMP dinner. Um, so with that all said, I'd like to get into the podcast with Greg. And typically what we do is just have a conversation uh, really about the things that I find interesting about a person and what I would have liked to have known maybe when I was 25. And this is a bit of a special podcast for me um, because I'm getting to do something that everyone wants to do, and that's uh, fuck with your old boss in front of a public <laughs> audience. <laughs> but no, in, in all seriousness, I'm going to talk to Greg tonight about really the, th the reason I reached out to Greg in the first place um, in 2015. And we're going to talk about entrepreneurship in mining. And I think the way to start is to tell you how Greg and I met. Um, I just moved to Vancouver. I was a mining engineer. I'd worked, as Mal said, for big consulting groups and mining companies all over the world. I did not know anything about the mining business as a business, although I was fairly convinced that I did. Um, and I started reaching out to people trying to feel my way through that business and get a better under, uh, understanding of how it works and really get my foot in the door in a good group that were starting mining companies. And I met Greg because I reached out to him via friend through an email. I said, I'm going down to Peru. Uh, can I take a look at your site? And I had to go to Peru for a wedding. Uh, and I needed something to make myself busy down there so that I could write it off for tax purposes. Uh, so I was going to write an article. Greg was running a company called Anthem United at the time, which we'll, no doubt we'll get into. Um, I checked it out. I saw, I saw several other companies while I was there. I interviewed all the management teams. And I walked away really, really impressed, particularly by Greg and the group of people he was working with at Anthem that he put together. And I decided that's really where I wanted to work. Um, and so I harassed him for the next several months. Uh, and we had drinks, and one thing led to another, and I ended up working with Anthem. And you know, three years later, Anthem was a $20 million company when I joined, and now it's Equinox Gold. I think you guys have a $900 million market cap. It was $750 when I left about a year and a half ago. Um, and most of what I've learned about 
building, financing, uh, running mining companies has been from Greg and the people he's surrounded himself with. So that is what I would like to focus on, how you actually do this sort of thing. Because I think a lot of people in this room uh, come from financial or technical backgrounds, and they probably wouldn't be here if they didn't have some interest in actually starting a company or being part of a new company. Uh, So I think that's what we should focus on, and that's been a big focus of your career. So I'm going to stop talking now and start answering questions, asking questions. Um, So Greg, can you give us the sort of 30,000-foot view of what you do today and what your role is at Equinox? Sure. Um, Okay, you guys can hear me, right? Uh, First, I'll say thanks, Jamie, obviously, and thanks, Mal, for putting this together, and thanks, everyone, that came tonight. Um, 30,000-foot view. So my role today at Equinox is is president of the company, and it's a a bit of an odd role because we have a CEO uh, and an executive team as well. That role was was sort of created as part of the creation of Equinox. We, we built Equinox through a number of uh, mergers and acquisitions over the last couple of years. I was uh, CEO of actually the, what is now Equinox, the parent company, uh, initially, and we had raised a bunch of money and we're looking for good assets. <clears throat> and we acquired an asset that we had just put, a, I was on the board of that asset too, but we had just put a good team in. So uh, I did not want to upset a team. Uh, really good people involved, but I did not want to sort of get off the bus at that time. We had just raised a lot of money. Uh, we had a, um, I think, a very similar philosophy in building a company, and so I took the role of president. And functionally, what I'm doing now is is kind of everything, but day-to-day, I guess, would be uh, M&A, sort of focusing on strategy and growth, and then also a lot of marketing, and then uh, just being a pain in the ass to everybody else in, in kind of inserting myself probably where I don't belong in the company. But uh, it's, a, it's actually been a really fun role. I'm, I'm really enjoying it. So I think we want to get into what Equinox is doing today and what it's like to sort of build a, I guess, really from nothing to a mid-tier gold producer. But I'm going to sort of take a step back to earlier in your career. Um, and you know, based on our past conversations, something I actually found really interesting about you is you didn't really have it all planned out from the get-go that you wanted to be an accountant or in mining or any of that. You kind of tried a lot of different things. You traveled a lot when you were younger. Can you talk a little bit about what actually led you into accounting and kind of how you found this niche for yourself in mining and how you go from really public practice, which is a very generic role that could lead you anywhere, mm-hmm. to a very specific one. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I got a business degree at UVic and had no intention of being an accountant. Uh, I will say that my father was telling me to be an accountant for years because he said, you'll always have a job, and, and that's probably why I didn't want to do it. But uh, he, uh, but it, it really had nothing to do with him. Ultimately, what happened is I, I'd been... I was at UVic. I, in the summers, was working in Switzerland as a bartender and, uh, and eventually needed to find a job and kind of applied all over the place uh, in every industry, sort of broadly, you know, threw spaghetti up the wall and, and wanted to see what stuck. And KPMG, at the time, were hiring people for the dot-com boom, right? This is 99, and, and dot-com was very exciting. And I didn't care one bit about it or have any interest in it, but I was interested in getting a job. And so KPMG was, was actually a, a kind enough to offer me a job and give me a choice as to where I worked. And 
as part of the, the recruiting process, which, which I went through, but sort of outside of their normal recruiting process, I, uh, I met people from every group. And one of the groups I met was industrial markets, which was basically mining and forestry. And, uh, and so, uh, uh, and they were just great people that were involved. They, they were kind of my, sort of my type of people at the time. And, and they, they made a good case. They, they said, listen, like in forestry and mining, you, you travel around to places no one's gonna, no one would typically go or maybe even wanna go and, it, and you don't have to be in the office all the time and it's really great people and it's really fun. And, and um, there was only like 11 people in the group because in 1999, mining was pretty dead. And, uh, and so nothing was happening. But it was really just starting to happen. So it was probably a lot of good, good luck and good timing. And I went into the industry really not knowing a whole lot about it, but uh, was given a really good sales pitch by the people that were in the mining group at KPMG at that time. So, okay, what I kind of find interesting about this is that like, I went into mining very, very deliberately. I like, chose mining engineering out of high school for a variety of reasons. And you kind of stumbled into mining. And was there, was there a time like when it went from this is sort of in something interesting to do because it's a good job and I need a job to like this is really the space that I want to focus on and was there a catalyst for that you know what I loved it right away um <clears throat> I started you know I, I started I think in January and um which is busy season if, if you're an auditor that's when all the financials get done and so I had no idea what I was doing but I got sent off to um I think to Reno pretty much right away for Glamis Gold. Uh, went up to the Northwest Territories uh, for the Acadie Diamond Mine. Uh, started traveling to uh, a number of different companies, different mines. And so right out of the gate, it was uh, it was just a really good time. And I, had, I ended up working with a really good group of people. And so, yeah, no, it was, there was no, you're right, there was no magic to it at all. Uh, I just ended up in it and, um, and then have loved it ever since. I've never done anything else. So given where we are and who we're talking to tonight, what was the spark that started YMP? So Young Mining Professionals, which it had other names earlier, I think. Well, yeah, so you want the real story. I want the real story. What actually happened. Yeah, so in 2006, um, I left KPMG in, I think it was March. I can't remember exactly. But anyway, I left the firm. And while I was here, I got, you know, I, I, I worked really closely with a lot of guys and, and became really good friends with a lot of people. And, uh, and we wanted to, to keep hanging out. And these were all um, guys that were still in the mining group here or, and at that point, were starting to leave. We were all sort of getting hoovered out of the firm into the mining companies. And uh, we just wanted a reason to hang out. So we would meet, you know, sort of quarterly or whatever at a, uh, at a steakhouse in Vancouver. And we, we eventually started calling it the Mining and Exploration Network, which was with the acronym was MEN. And uh, it, was very, it was very different than, than what, it was, what it is today. And so that, that was what started it. And, and then you know, over time, uh, guys from our respective companies started coming and, and you know, kind of got bigger. And then, um, and, then, uh, and then we even had some girls start showing up. And then men started to feel a little bit inappropriate as a name and it wasn't official like at this point and then Rowan Hazelton actually um, he uh, he really was the one that said hey like this is actually really fun this is really cool we should do a formal event and uh, we did our first like really formal event at the Vancouver Club which was really just a networking uh, kind of dinner when was this I want to say it started in 06 but I want to say the first formal event was 07 okay. and um, 
and it was super fun. So we just, uh, from there, it just kind of kept, you know, it kept growing. So now, 12 years later, there's chapters here, Toronto, Montreal, London, somewhere in Australia, South Africa. South Africa. So it's pretty cool to see, you know, your, your basically your drinking club turn yeah. into a global organization. It is. It's unbelievable. Um, and I got to be 100% transparent. I had almost, it was all you. I've had nothing to do with it. <laughs> I've had nothing to do with it. In fact... You know, Vancouver got bigger and bigger, and it became too much work for, for Rowan and Scott Jeffrey, who, who would also be considered a, a co-founder of YMP. And uh, yeah, it just got too much for us. So we ended up trying to kind of bring some new blood in to actually do things. And then we got cold called by a, uh, a guy out of Toronto who wanted to start a Toronto chapter. And um, this is Stephen Stewart. Stephen right? Stewart. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and so he wanted to start it. And we kind of said, you know what? Yeah, we, we're not going to start it. And, and, um, and so he started the Toronto chapter and really he was, I think probably the biggest influence in expanding YMP over the last number of years. And then Catriona Bedell got involved out of London and between the two of them and sort of the team they've built, this thing has really, really expanded. And, you know, Scott Rowan and I, uh, stay involved as sort of like not even official board members, but, but, uh, sounding boards more than anything. But, um, yeah, it's, it's fantastic. I, and, I, and hopefully it's still adding value to people. I try and go to events when I can, but, um, but I kind of track it on LinkedIn and track it on the websites and talk to Steven and talk to Catriona and it's going really well. It just keeps growing. Okay. So I want to shift gears now and I want to talk about transitions essentially. And so when you came out of public practice, you started working for Goldcorp, which was a rapidly growing company at the time, you know, high profile CEO, well-funded. And shortly after that, you left to go be on track to be the CFO of MindFinders, a much smaller company, uh, a very entrepreneurial venture uh, with an uncertain future. Um, I think everyone here and most people listening can obviously see the appeal of moving from public practice into a more established mining company that's growing well financed. I think it becomes a harder choice to leave a company like that and go to a mine finders, which is tenuous depending on the market and all sorts of other things, uh, but also has tremendous upside opportunity. Can you maybe talk about sort of the catalysts that um, instigated that decision? Yeah. So I loved working at Goldcorp. It was, uh, I, I think... I'm going to get the numbers wrong, probably this entire discussion, but I think I was employee 25 in the head office. And this was after, um, you know, uh, Wheaton River had done all the work to kind of form Goldcorp. But so I came in late and um, my title was manager of risk, which at the time didn't mean much. I mean, it, it was it was a lot of flying around in the mines and working on Sarbanes-Oxley and, and which was being implemented and helping out with uh, integration of a whole bunch of assets that had been acquired. Gold Corp had just acquired the um, Placer Dome assets. And so there was a whole bunch of things that were happening. And because of that Placer Dome transaction, I think, I think the, the head count in, in Vancouver went from, call it 25, to sort of 90-something people over nine or 10 months that I was there. So it was a period of... of, of tremendous change at Gold Corp. And I really, really liked it and had no intention of leaving. And then I just got an offer from MindFinders uh, that, um, that was too, you know, sort of too good to turn down. So 
Um, so I took that role and it was, it was CFO it was to go, you know, it was to leave and be CFO. And the thing is at that time in the market, we, um, and when I say we, I mean, chartered accountants that were at big four firms were, were getting hired into roles. They probably had no business doing based on experience because the industry had been so, uh, sort of slow and decimated. No one was going into it. No one had mining experience. And all of a sudden the market was picking up. There was M and A, there was, Sarbanes-Oxley, IFRS financings that had to be done, and there was just no one to do them. So the demand for for chartered accountants uh, at that time that had mining experience was significant, and we were just getting kind of hired all over the place, you know? So you had a lot of young guys and girls in pretty senior roles at uh, mining companies very suddenly, sort of from 2000 to, to 2010 almost. And you were in your early 30s at that point, is that right? Uh, you're going to make me do math. Um, yeah, I guess so. Yeah. yeah. So was that, I mean, <laughs> was that a, like, was the transition from, I mean, did you see yourself being in the junior startup game when you were kind of in public practice or did you see yourself, you know, working your way up through a major mining company? I, I didn't see anything like, I really, um, I had no, no, it's not that I had no ambition. I just, I was in mining. I'd been at KPMG. I took a role at Goldcorp. Um, I took the role at MindFinders, and I took the role at MindFinders because there was, so here's the catalyst. You want a catalyst? Here it is. At Goldcorp, the company was growing quickly. I had a manager title, and I went from kind of being a manager at KPMG where for my clients, and that would include Glamis Gold and, and some of these larger mining companies, you know, I was sort of in the room. You know, I, I had access to all their board minutes. When they did a transaction, the auditors were involved. We reviewed their, their information. We knew if they were going to do something. Uh, interesting financing M&A, but at Goldcorp, I was not at that level, and uh, and I didn't like it. You know, I wanted to be um, have a little more influence on the direction of the company, if if I was to reflect and think yeah. about it. And so, MindFinders was it wasn't just a bump in, in pay and and sort of seniority. It was kind of having a seat back so at the table. Your relevance was getting diluted, kind of yeah. with yeah. the more people they yeah. added. Yeah. yeah, and the fun thing for me is not not just doing the work, right? I want to be a decision maker, a decision maker involved in that strategic focus and the growth and the, and the, and the strategy of the company. And so MindFinders is an opportunity to do that. So I think it's worth giving a bit of an overview of how MindFinders went, because this was a big turning point in your career. Um, I think it, looking from the outside, it sets you up to do a lot of the other things that you did down the road. What, what sort of, what's the broad strokes of the MindFinders story? Yeah, it's been a while now, so I have to think about it. But, I mean, broad strokes, it turned out well. It turned out well. We, we had a sale to Pan American Silver in 2012 for $1.5 billion. So the, the ultimate result was positive for our shareholders. The way to get there was extremely challenging. Um, we, MindFinders, when I joined, was an exploration company that had raised a bunch of money and was starting to build a mine, a fairly large mine in Mexico, and we really, we really internally didn't have a lot of the skill set at that time to do it. We were relying on our engineering, our EPCM contractor, and um, and the market was humming and and it was it was great. But we had some challenges in the build, and then we hit the uh, financial crisis. So, you know, two thousand eight, uh, two thousand nine happened, and uh, and so that was a huge, huge challenge for us. So we. You know, the stock went up, the stock went down. You know, the mine was kind of getting built over this period of time. 
we went from having lots of money to having no money to having lots of money. It was, uh, it was probably the most stressful period of my entire career, but did turn out really well. And there was a great team at MindFinders and really good people to work with. And, and uh, really that experience kind of set the foundation for everything I've done since. Yeah. So, you, you know, you sold that. You came away with a little bit of money and a bit of a reputation that allowed you to eventually now become, become the CEO of your own company and start another company. And, you know, we're, we don't have an unlimited amount of time, unfortunately. Um, so instead of getting into the nitty-gritty details of that, I wouldn't mind more generally talking about the process of starting your own company, why you would do it, who should do it, who maybe would be better suited for a role internally at one of those companies once it's more established. And I guess, you know, as the broad strokes, you started Esperanza, which was, you know, sold within 18 months. Then you started Anthem United, which was eventually turned into Equinox. Uh, so significant amount of success there, but, you know, a lot of long, hard road in between that, as I saw some of that. I guess the big question is sort of why, why work for yourself here when you really established yourself as a solid CEO, that new CFO rather, who knew how to transact, who knew how to work for bigger companies, what made you take the leap into, you know, being the CEO and, you know, getting all the glory, but also all the problems associated with that? And so what are the sort of characteristics you think you'd, in people that should be doing that sort of thing and who would maybe, and others who would perhaps be better off staying as a CFO or maybe more a secondary role? It's a long question. Yeah, it's a long question. <laughs> so the question is, Characteristics. Um, well, I mean, to clarify, you know, both Esperanza and Anthem United were very different situations, right? Esperanza was one where we we um, kind of did a management transition into an existing company, raised a lot of money, and so money wasn't really the issue at Esperanza, and we didn't really start it. We had a good asset and, and kind of infrastructure that we were able to adopt. Anthem United was from scratch, totally different uh, scenario. And I don't know that... Um, you know, it's hard to say what the characteristics are. I can tell you that in all three of those situations, MindFinders, Esperanza, and Anthem United, it, it was we had some extraordinarily stressful periods of time that required a tremendous amount of work. And so um, what got us through that was, you know, just like bullheaded sort of tenacity uh, to keep pushing no matter what happened, right? And And trying to, you know, manage stress in a way that was productive and, and not sort of falling apart and giving up and quitting and walking away. So, the, you know, um, in, in, and in all of those cases, in, in Esperanza and Anthem United, it was, kind of, it was exactly like you said, it was surrounding myself with people that were of a similar um, focus and disposition, and, and but also would compliment me in ways that, that would help make it all work, right? And, uh, and in both those cases, it was never about me. It was kind of about the team that we put together. And both were the same goal. It's always been the goal is to build, you know, a multi-asset, meaningful gold company. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, Esperanza, we, we kind of got the first step there, even announced the transaction. Didn't work out the way we wanted. Kind of went to Anthem United right back to basics to start something from scratch. And as you are well aware, it's tough. You know, it was yep. tough, tough, tough. And um, and frankly, we're still, you know, it still feels like we're building it. You know, Equinox is big, but we're not. Two we're not producing there yet. mines, another yeah. one on the way. Yeah. 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 It's very different, obviously. But, 
um, but still not where we want to get to yet. Well, okay, I think you touched on something that's probably worth elaborating on and have it in my notes here, and that's really building supporters. Um, and I think back to my time at Anthem United. So Anthem United was part of what I would call a mini toll milling bubble, right, where nothing was happening on the TSXV, at least with respect to mining. And then these toll milling companies came out. There were three or four of them. They were going to be cash flow producing junior miners. And in a really shitty market where no one could raise money, that became a really exciting idea. And there was some capital that came into that. Now, the reality of running these things turned out to be much more challenging than I think any of these companies anticipated. Um, and the initial financing that most of these companies completed turned out to not be enough for any of them. And Anthem United was able to survive that and you know, eventually become Equinox because there was a group of committed supporters around it. Uh, Pathway Capital and some of the gentlemen from Sandstorm Gold and et cetera, et cetera, that you'd sort of put together in your career. And what I have seen, um, especially in junior companies, one of the most defining features of success is the ability to have sort of numerous swings at bat because almost inevitably these things take longer, cost more money, and run into some complication that no one anticipates. And the people that can go back to their supporters and get more money and take another chance at it tend to be the ones that succeed as opposed to the ones that very, very often get one shot. So that's all a prequel to, like, how does someone who's interested in starting a company is not necessarily in the lead role start building that network of supporters that will buy into their idea, that will support them, that will really be the bedrock of the foundation of these sort of very um, risky ventures. Yeah, well, I agree 100% with you. I mean, uh, the way we were able to continue with those companies and turn them into what they are today and to what happened was 100% because of the people around us. How that came to be was more organic. I got to say, it wasn't a calculated kind of, I made a plan to surround myself with supporters. I've always kind of known, you know, you want to work with good people, everyone does. And in this business, your reputation is sort of everything and, and um, you want people to work with you, but not calculated. I met Nolan Watson at Gold Corp. You know, I, I met a lot of people through KPMG, just my clients, right? At that time, um, uh, had a lot of good clients. And so uh, when the time came to do uh, the Esperanza deal, Nolan introduced me to Marcel DeGroot and Dave DeWitt and, uh, and that group of people. And then I was lucky enough to sort of base myself in the Sandstorm office for a number of years. And so their network sort of became my network and, uh, and, uh, and that worked out really well for us, right? But a lot of people have met Nolan Watson. Yeah, 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 yeah. I guess I worked with Nolan Watson. Yeah, um, a lot of people worked at GoCorp. That's true, that's true. I, I think true. kind of what I'm thinking here is like, there's more to it than that, right? Like, I, I think there's a lot more to how you align yourself with the right people and make sure you sort of deliver value to them. What I've found uh, for myself is that people give you more credit when you do something for them first. Uh, and if you can, you know, successful people always seem to have someone that wants something from them. And if you can put yourself in a position where you can give them something before you have to ask for anything, that tends to 
endear you at least to get a, another, another discussion. I don't know. Did you find yourself trying to find ways to add value or was it that the opportunity that you were presenting was compelling to them and then they were, they bought into your leadership and judgment on that? Well, I mean, maybe a bit of both. Yeah. Uh, we, you know, I, I've always worked closely with the people that we're close to, you know, whether from a board perspective or a network perspective, um, it, you know, we, you go through ups and downs with people and you kind of, you get closer, you know, close to people and, you know, you keep, people that want to work together, keep working together. Um, I wish I had more, more, uh, it's not an easy more wisdom yeah, on yeah. that. It, it, you know, I guess part of it is, yeah, I agree. You know, i if people have needed help or called me for favors or, or need my assistance or something, I, I'll usually do it if it's uh, if it's someone that um, that uh, that needs my assistance. And if I need something, I usually don't hesitate to call people and ask them. You know, I'm happy. I'll, I'll, a week will not go by where I don't call someone from my network to ask them a question about some situation or oppor- investment opportunity or person or just advice on sort of strategy. Right. So. So let's let's change to a more di- a more more direct question. So. You actually sat down with me. I don't know if you remember this. Um, pretty early when we, I was working for you, I was like running off to Mon- not Mongolia, sorry, Myanmar to look at projects. And I was obsessed with the idea of acquiring a Ruby project in Myanmar, which turned out to be a horrible idea. I'll tell everyone now. <laughs> but I, I was scheming and thinking of this and that. And I actually I remember I sat in your office and you were like, whoa, like, you need to understand how these companies are actually put together. And... I thought I had a good idea, and it turns out I had no idea how those companies are put together. Can you give us the, like, the broad stroke steps of, like, how a junior mining company actually starts? Because I think there's probably people here, and I know there's people listening, and I know I was one of these people that thought it would be really cool to start one of these things or had an aspiration to do that. But like, it's, it's like a bit of a black box because it's such a niche part of finance that there's no books written on it. There's no... You know, there's very little material available unless you know someone that has done it that can kind of walk you through the process. It's very hard to figure that out. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of ways to do it, right? Um, you know, with Anthem United, we kind of we started a private company without any assets, and then we went looking for assets, and then we raised money as part of going public through a, a reverse takeover transaction where we found a a a already public company to then merge into and become a public company. And, um, and so that is, I actually found that to be a pretty efficient way of doing it. There's a little more risk because you don't have full control over the shareholder base of the company that's mm-hmm. acquiring you. And this is probably what you're getting at is, you know, a big part of starting these companies is the initial shareholder base and what that structure looks like. And ideally you have people that are in there, especially the big shareholders initially that are going to be long-term and supportive and don't want to sell the shares. So, and really will continue to finance a company as it grows. So I, I think anyone can start a company. It's easy. The hard part is I would not do anything unless I knew I had those supporters that you're talking about, people yeah. that, that have access to capital, access to projects, are there to support a company for a long time. And that's really a, a situation where they're betting on the team, right? Because you don't necessarily have a project or the project when you're starting these things. But you know what? You can go onto the TSX Venture website, download a PDF. It'll tell you how to start a CPC, 
It'll cost you a hundred grand and you're done. You have your company. And I mean, I guess you kind of got at what I was hinting at too, is a lot of what we talk about in our, in our newsletter, which probably not everyone here has read is choosing companies that are structured in the right way. And probably people here, and I heard this a lot, like what's the structure? What's the structure? Um, And I had no idea what that actually meant when I first heard it. Uh, And and I, I guess that really goes down to who owns what stock, what price did they buy it at, and how much do they own? And how important it is that it's set up in a way that the early, cheaper stock is held by people that are not going to sell it immediately. And then it's really cut the legs out from under a company and see it implode. Um, what was your, your speech called last year? How You Got Screwed in 2018. How You Got Screwed. Yeah. Everybody should watch that. That actually was a really good explanation of that exact situation. And I would say, like, it's 50% of the success of a company almost. Like, if you have the right asset in a decent team and they get, the, like, there are many examples of this. They partner with the wrong financiers and then four months after, they're done. It, sorry, I say four months after. After they list, the stock becomes free trading. And they, they take such a hit early on. The share price doesn't give them the leverage to recapitalize in the way they would want. And it's an uphill battle if they're not mortally wounded at that point. I mean, I like to think if you have a good asset and a good team, you'll be able to survive that kind of market fluctuation. I mean, if really your core supporters should see that as an opportunity, if you really have the goods, right? But I agree. I mean, if you have, you know, they say weekends in your stock, uh, every time you get any momentum, you're going to see selling and it's it's it comes down to cost of capital, right? Mm-hmm. Like every junior company needs money and you need more than you think and you need it more often than you think. And if you don't have access to capital or your share price is perpetually low, that makes it really tough. Especially if you start with, you know, personally owning 30%, you're going to be, you know, rapidly pushed down to 1% before you get any momentum. Um, it takes some of that incentive away too, right? From yeah. a good team. Yeah. Mal, how are we doing for time here? Okay. Well, we'll wrap it up with a couple more questions. Um, oh man, I got so much good shit in here too. Uh, I'm only halfway done my beer, Jamie. Well, I want to talk about um, very briefly the role, and I, you know, this is something I think about a lot um, when I'm trying to console myself. Uh, the role of luck and timing and setbacks in this industry. Uh, you know, mining, as we know, is a cyclical industry. Uh, what would you say the role of luck has been in your career? How important has it been? And then I've got some follow-on questions around that. I think it's been incredibly important. Are you kidding? I mean, we, like, like I said, the market, mining market took off in 2000, right when I went into the industry, uh, everything got really heated up. And, and so like I had five years of experience and then all of a sudden I was manager of risk at gold corp. And then all of a sudden I was CFO of mine finders. And seriously, and, and that, that is an anomaly in any industry. Um, How have you found the last couple of years? Well, I think so. <laughs> it, was a, it was an incredible bull market, you know, the greatest bull market of all time with some, a bump in the road there with the financial crisis. And that was great because I learned an, like an unbelievable amount of amount over that period. I went through a huge amount of stress and different transactions and saw a lot and, um, and built a good network when things were really good. And then when things were tough, you know, guys that have been in the industry way longer than me always said, you know, the way to, to really make money in the industry is to be around when it's a bear market. And so um, when times got tough, that's when, uh, um, you know, my business partner, Dan O'Flaherty, you know, Dan, 
we, we kind of said, let's try and buy assets. Things are cheap. And we tried. We actually took some big swings and never got that big asset we were searching. And then with Anthem United, we ended up doing the smaller deal in Peru. And that was, we kind of had a team to run that. That was kind of, let's do that. But we're, we were still looking for the big asset. And it just got harder and harder and harder to raise money, to, to find good deals. And, um, but actually, in retrospect, there were probably good deals all around us. I mean, you look, you look back, we should have been buying hand over fist, just, just good, uh, good assets. Anyway, I like to think that if you, again, it comes down to tenacity and perseverance. If you're in this industry over the long term and you play the cycles right, it's where timing comes in. Uh, so a little luck and timing, then you can be really successful. But you have to be able, you have to be willing to stick around when it's tough, right? I think people go, coming in now are going to do great. So do you think, I mean, perseverance is the way to maximize for luck in the space or are there other, other aspects as well? I think this is a super hard business and uh, it can get really stressful. And yeah, I 100% think that you have to have that never say die kind of attitude and, uh, and you can't sweat every little issue because in mining you're dealing with governments and communities and geology and weather and the markets and the commodity prices and everything. And it's even when things are going fantastically well in the financial statements and the news releases, I can tell you it's still in most mining companies underneath it all in any number of different areas, it's a total clusterfuck. So it, you're always dealing with that stuff. Always, always, always. And you have to manage across that and you have to be you know, tenacious, right? When you do. Did you have you had any particular setbacks or failures that or that something that felt a lot like a almost a devastating failure at the time, but that like further down the road in your career turned out to be actually quite a valuable lesson or opened up another opportunity that you might not have seen in the moment? Yeah, I mean, I, I struggle all the time in in thinking about this and Esperanza as an example, right? We, we took over the company, we did a lot of good things, we negotiated this, what I thought was a great deal with Pan American Silver, the market was happy, shareholders were happy, and then, you know, the, the gold, this is April 2013, the gold price tanked, uh, we had some permitting issues in Mexico, it got really tough uh, in terms of capital, companies were now hemorrhaging money. And that deal wasn't closing, and ultimately Alamos came in, made an offer, we sold the company, kind of got out with our shirts intact, but I, that sale did not feel good. We, we, it's not what we wanted to accomplish, right? We wanted to build a company, we were kind of on the cusp, and then you know, it kind of fell apart. And so that was disappointing, um, but you know, the market kept going down, so I don't know, like it definitely was probably, it was absolutely was the right thing to do. It was the right transaction to do. We did the analysis and, and then the market just sort of confirmed that it was the right thing to do. But that experience, first of all, it freed me up to, to kind of do the next thing, which is now Equinox Gold. That may not have happened. And then uh, it also taught a lot of lessons in, in sort of how to manage across uh, good news and bad news in a, in a momentum company, right? And that's really what we are now. We're a momentum company doing a whole bunch of different things. And over the period of building Equinox, there's going to be good news and there's going to be bad news and there's going to be market volatility and, and corporate volatility. But we have this grand vision and you know, just keep, keep focus on the big picture. And with Esperanza, we just didn't quite get there to that point. I think with Equinox, we are. We've now built enough scale that we can kind of forget the short term and really focus on the long term. And that is, uh, that, I don't think we'd be in that position had 
you know, had we still been in Esperanza, it would have been a, a company with small, smaller assets that would have then gone through a really horrible bear market. Yeah. Price would have kept going down, would have been hard to raise money, and we no, would not have been able to deliver on the strategy we had at that time. So I want to open it up for a Q&A, um, but my last question is, is there any advice you would have to people that are trying to educate themselves more in this world, I suppose, entrepreneurship and mining, you know, beyond a classical finance or technical degree? Is there something that people can keep doing to... Yeah, there's so many books. Like, Yeah? What would you, you recommend? Gotta, you know, the big, the big Score, if you haven't read that, you should read it tomorrow. That's... Uh, who, who wrote that? Jackie oh, McNish. Yeah. That's all about Boise's Bay. Canadian. Yeah, Robert Friedman's yeah. Boise's Bay. It's a great book on the on the industry. You should read um, Norman Keevil just put out last year, Never Rest on Your Oars. You should read that. And these are, the reason those are good books is they, you know, uh, the big score is kind of big discovery, big sales process, big M&A kind of book. And then Never rest on your oars is sort of the creation of tech and all the way through to today, which is which is really neat and kind of shows how M&A has changed over the years. Um, really, really good books on the industry. And if you're going to start a company and, and you want kind of the real deal, I just read uh, The Hard Thing About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz, which is Silicon Valley, a whole different industry, but same exact principles, right? Trying to start something from scratch and funding issues and people issues and all the... Uh, the hard things that you'd have to go through. But those are great books. Um, for On the exploration side, Dave Lowell has a book, uh, The Intrepid Explorer. It's a fantastic book if you want a real sort of layman's terms explanation of, of discovery and, and Dave's career. And if anyone wants that book, I have some copies in my office. I'm happy to give them to anyone that wants one. Crazy. It's a great book. Yeah, I would add to that, too, as a book that helped me the most is um, The Black Swan by Nassim Taleb, which is... This description is not going to do it justice, but it is a way of thinking about risk and how to allocate capital and risk. And that sounds super boring, but it's actually a really, really interesting book and a good read. Uh, and that, for me, like how you finance mining companies and how you invest in mining companies, that has absolutely changed the yeah, way. We I, talked about that, didn't we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have. Yeah. It's a bit of a fuzzy Yeah, it's a bit fuzzy, but I do remember but, uh, talking about that book. Yeah. All right. Uh, <laughs> Greg, thank you very much. And thanks a lot again to YMP and uh, KPMG in particular. Thanks, Jeremy. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Resource Insider Podcast. If you're interested in getting access to the biggest deals and best opportunities in the mining and metals industry, go to capitalistexploits.at and sign up for Resource Insider now. Mm-hmm.